Well, uh, there's this famous instance that uh, Vince Lombardi is kind of known for. Uh, Vince Lombardi, the first coach of the Green Bay Packers, where he went to the locker room or something, and he's, he's teaching the, uh, the players on the first day, and he holds up a football, and he says, you know, men, this is a football, you know. And uh, the most basic elementary point is where he started. And essentially, that's what we're doing today, starting off with, this is a Bible, talking about the most basic elementary point when it comes to Christian doctrine. The first lesson about Christian beliefs must justify the use of the Christian book, okay? So what, that's what we're going to do, is we're going to consider this book that God's given us, our Bible, and seek to justify our usage of this book as our basis for doctrine and theology. And the first thing we want to talk about is authority. So follow along there in your notes. There are basically two options that you have when it comes to authority. God or self. This is a really fundamental point. You can either appeal to your own judgment, or you can give up your own judgment for the sake of what God has to say. That's the fundamental watershed, continental divide type starting point when it comes to Christian belief. Those are your two options. You can start with God, or you can start with self. If the Bible isn't your authority, your own finite and fallible brain is your authority. And being your own authority is not only circular, it's self-defeating. Perhaps you've talked to somebody who is an atheist, just a secular person, and you've asked them that question that they hate to hear, which is, how do you know that? That's a great question to ask somebody who says, I don't believe in God. Ask that person, uh, anytime that person makes a claim, well, how do you know that to be true? So, for instance, the person might say, uh, I believe in the Big Bang Theory. That there, was, uh, there are these gases that were in space that existed and they combusted. And over a long, 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 essentially eternal period of time, here we are. Ask that person, well, how do you know that? That's a good question to ask. And what is that person going to say? Can we get a couple chairs next to one another for this couple? Duarte's? We don't want them to sit apart. That would just be heartbreaking, wouldn't it? Look how accommodating our sweet church is to you guys. Look at Miss Joe. Thank you guys so much. Very good. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Yeah, this is what? A couple weeks in a row that you've been the center of attention here, Lizzie. That's all right. Um, what was I saying? Oh, asking a secular person, how do you know that? How do you know that? How do you know that? Okay, what is, what is the secular person going to say when, when the secular person claims Big Bang Theory and then random evolution? You say, how do you know that's what happened? Well, that person's probably going to go right to science. You, you've probably heard that. Well, you know, sci modern science has proven X, Y, Z. Well, how do you know that they've done science correctly? <laughs> Just... Uh, it was uh, yesterday. Uh, I was out with my uh, in-laws and the kids, and we were out looking at uh, these beautiful mountains that we have right now. It's fall in Utah. Is there a better time than Utah fall? Oh, man. And we were out in Springville, and we were looking at these beautiful things. And, and you can just see evidence of a worldwide flood. You can see evidence of, of God's hand in creation through the whole thing. And... Uh, you know, we're kind of joking around about how scientists will say, well, that took, you know, billions, millions, whatever billions they want to put on it of years to form that. Well, how do they get there? Well, they start with a presupposition that the Bible can't be true. They start with a presupposition that, well, the earth can't be thousands of years old. And so they have their dating methods and their dating methods have these presuppositions baked into them. And that's how they get the numbers that they want. I mean, so often in life, what you believe is just the outflow of where you started. And they start with, well, God doesn't exist. The Bible's not true. And so, you know, they, they have these methods. Well, how do you know that those methods are right? You can ask a secular person. And eventually, the person's just going to have to say, well, I've used my own senses and reasoning. I've used my own logic. I've appealed to my own standards. And modern science has satisfied my demands for what should be true. So you're the authority. Your standard, your reasoning, your logic, that is the ultimate authority. And for anything to be true, 
It has to meet your standard. See what I mean about you either start with self or you start with God? And as Christians, we don't start there. We say, God is and He has spoken and I'm going to appeal to what God has said. So our starting points are really basic. God exists and I'm not Him. The first guy who ever discipled me, we're going to break for questions later. Oh, you need a binder though? We should have another one over here by Rex. Is that one free? That binder? We had just enough. Five dollars. <laughs> yeah. The money changer says five dollars. <clears throat> and there should be pins around too. Um, the, the first guy who discipled me as a new believer would constantly tell me, there are two things you need to know. There is a God and you're not Him. All right? And that is really, really basic. God exists. We're not Him. And we need God to tell us what is true. We appeal to truth from outside of ourselves coming in and revealing to us. All knowledge and wisdom comes from God. And our confession, again, in its most elementary form, is that we will listen to God as our authority. If you start anywhere else than that, you're going to end up in a bad place. Yes, Lizzie. Oh. Here, I've got a, an extra. For such a time as this. Are you sure you're missing the first page? Oh, yeah, you're missing the first lesson entirely. Okay, so we appeal to God outside of ourselves as our authority. We will listen to what God has to say. That is where we start as Christians, okay? God informs us through revelation. So now we're, we're transitioning from authority to revelation. God informs us of what we need to know as our authority through what we call revelation. And there's a difference between general revelation and special revelation. This is a, a basic distinction that we need to get. This is general revelation. God revealing himself through creation. Okay, this is the way that God reveals himself generally. It's through creation, and he's revealing himself to his creatures. That's general revelation, and we find a very clear explanation of this in Romans 1. So please turn in your Bibles to Romans 1. I know I'm asking you to take notes and turn in your Bibles, but we'll give plenty of time here. Romans chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 18 through uh, 23. Romans chapter 1, 18 to 23. This is one of the key passages when it comes to general revelation. Another passage that you can look at is Psalm 19. You can just jot that down. There's Roman one, Romans 1, that's very clear, and Psalm 19, which is also quite clear, that God has revealed himself generally to all of his creatures. Psalm 19.1, you probably know this verse, the heavens declare what? The glory of God, right? That's a, a simple, big statement of God has revealed himself to all of his creatures. All the heavens declare his glory. This is done not in a specific sense, but in a general sense. You don't wake up as an unbeliever, go outside and look at the heavens and say, Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins in my place. But... You do go out and you, look, you can look in the heavens as an unbeliever and say, there's more to life than me. God must exist. This creation is evidence for a creator. This isn't an accident. It all works together too well. And not just what you see in nature, but even our experience of emotion, love and joy and peace and fear. All of these things are evidence that there's more to life than just material. There's more to life than what we can put under a microscope or see with a telescope. That's general revelation. So let's look at Romans 1, verses 18 to 23. Can I get a volunteer to read that for us? Romans 1, 18 to 23. Jordan, go ahead. For the wrath of God is revealed in heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. But since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image, made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. All right. Well, there's a very interesting phrase here. I mean, there's so much to see uh, if we slow down and, and look at each phrase. But look at the end of verse 20. 
It says that they, and this is talking about unbelieving humanity, human beings who are lost, who haven't been reconciled to God, who are still in a state of sin opposing God, they are without excuse. That's, that's a very important phrase. And what we're learning from this passage is that general revelation, you can add this to your notes, general revelation is sufficient for condemnation. They are unable to get saved by observing nature, by observing that which is generally revealed. But they are able to be condemned because of what they do with general revelation. And it says here in this passage that what does, what does lost man do with this revelation from God? As he is declaring his glory through the heavens, man in his natural state suppresses the truth in unrighteousness and replaces God with a creature, replaces the creator with a creature. That is what man naturally does in his flesh. He doesn't naturally want to worship God. He naturally wants to replace God. And so often, that authority figure just becomes ourselves. That is idolatry. So general revelation is sufficient for condemnation. Man can be condemned because of what he has done with the general revelation God has given him. Special revelation is different. It is the way that God reveals himself in greater detail, and he does so through the canon of Scripture. And I'll read this for you from 2 Timothy chapter 3. This is going to be verses 16 and 17. 2 Timothy 3. And, and there are, again, multiple passages we can go to for every topic that we're going to cover in this whole course. But uh, 2 Timothy 3 is a key passage. Another one is 2 Peter 1. So if you wanted to jot down 2 Peter 1, 19 to 21, that's another important passage. But 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped... For every good work. That the man of God may be adequate. And so, special revelation, as opposed to general revelation, it's sufficient for something, but it's sufficient for salvation. As general revelation was sufficient for condemnation, it could never save. Special revelation is sufficient for salvation. You can add that to your notes. So man is condemned on the basis of what he does with the revelation he's given from God. And he's given quite a lot. It said back in Romans 1 that God's divine power, his eternal power, is clearly seen. It's not just seen. You see that in Romans 1? Clearly seen. God is clearly seen in nature. Well, what man does with that is suppress it, and that's sufficient for his condemnation. Special revelation, on the other hand, is sufficient for salvation. Through the Word of God, we can understand what it is to be saved, what it means to be saved. You can perhaps think of uh, Romans chapter 10, where it says, how can they hear without a preacher? And how, how can someone preach unless he is sent? But faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. We need the Word of God, His special revelation, in order to have faith, in order to believe. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Now, I, I do want to clarify something uh, that may be floating around in your mind. I use the definition in the definition here, canon of Scripture. Special revelation has to do with the canon of Scripture. Well, what is the canon? The canon of Scripture refers to the Bible as God's complete Word. And we'll look at this in great detail way down the road, okay? But for now, just know that that's what that term means. And the canon of Scripture, you could... In a very rudimentary sense, you can think of it as your table of contents at the front of your Bible. Okay? It's not a separate work of revelation uh, in addition to the special revelation God has given us. And what I mean by that is um, it's not that God called a bunch of people together at some point in history and gave them a new revelation and said, these are the books that go in the Bible. That didn't happen. And uh, we'll talk more about that later. But the canon of Scripture refers to uh, the whole of the Bible. Now, in Revelation, both general and special, we see God's attributes in action. 
And we see that God reveals to us, this is your blank here, God reveals to us because He is personal. Because God is personal, He is willing to reveal Himself to mankind. And I think this is just an amazing fact to dwell on. We know that God doesn't need us. I hope we know that, okay? Uh, if you didn't know that, uh, welcome to Christianity. God doesn't need you, all right? <laughs> That's a, another basic element to pick up on. God doesn't need you. He doesn't need relationship with you. God has existed for all eternity in relationship with himself, Father, Son, and Spirit. But because he's a personal God who has created you in his image, he desires fellowship with you. And that's why he reveals. That's why he created. He created and he revealed for his own glory through relationship with us because he is a personal God. Yet we also recognize, this is your other blank, that God is infinite. And because he is infinite, he is able to keep this revelation to mankind. So not only is he willing to reveal, he's able to keep his revelation. And this is vitally important, of course, around here, when so often we have conversations about, can you trust the Bible? Uh, were plain and precious things removed from the Bible? Well, if that was the case, if plain and precious things were removed, that means either God was not willing or not able to keep his revelation. Yet we know God is both, isn't he? He is both able and willing to not only reveal himself, but to keep that revelation, to preserve his revelation. And that's what uh, we'll talk about for the next section. After we go through preservation, I'll pause uh, for questions, and that'll probably be the end of the class today, okay? So let's talk about his ability to preserve his word, the preservation of his word. The preservation of Scripture is an important doctrine as it relates to the way Christians know God and discover how he wants us to live. And to put it really simply, if you're looking for just a real basic idea of what preservation is, because God has sovereignly preserved His Word, we can trust our Bibles, okay? Because God has sovereignly preserved His Word, we can trust our Bibles. That's uh, the bottom line definition. And if we lose this, if we don't have a reason to believe that our Bibles are trustworthy, that they hold an accurate record of what God has revealed, we lose all of Christianity. I hope you recognize that. If you give up the doctrine of preservation of Scripture, you lose the faith. Because the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. That's Ephesians 2.20. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. That means that their work, what God has revealed through them, this special revelation sufficient for salvation, if we lose that foundation, the house comes crumbling down. There is no Christian church. There is no Christian faith. There is no Christian doctrine class based on the Word of God. But we lose it all. And so preservation is extremely important. John MacArthur and Richard Mayhew in their book, Biblical Doctrine, say that preservation as a doctrine refers to the acts of God whereby He has preserved through the centuries the written record of His special revelation to His people. Okay? Just another way of saying the same thing. So I want to, I want to walk through, again, just real basic how this preservation took place. Because when we talk about preservation, you've noticed in the last couple of slides, I'm not here saying that God has preserved all the letters of the apostles in these glass cases in Jerusalem. And you can go look at them, and no one has touched them, no one has damaged them, and they are in pristine condition. You can go look and see Paul's handwriting. It's pretty amazing. That's not the doctrine of preservation. The doctrine of preservation is that God has used a specific means of bringing his word from the apostles' pens to us. And that means wasn't preserving the originals. But let's start with the originals. And again, real basic, you had the original letter written. This is a copy of, of one of the originals. It's an early copy, though. And it would look something like that, written in Greek. And the original was inspired. Okay, The original letter was inspired. You want to make a note of that. Okay, we're making a, going to make a distinction here between originals and copies. The original letter that was written was inspired by God. And so you had an apostle and a prophet there. And in a special way, the Holy Spirit empowered him to write something down exactly the way God wanted it to be written down. He didn't become a robot. His brain didn't turn off. God didn't overpower his pen. Yet through God's mysterious means, the final product was exactly what God wanted. And that, that's what we call inspiration. 
The original letter was written and it was inspired. Well, that letter went out to a church. Uh, We'll just talk in the New Testament context. Paul, for instance, would write a letter off to a church. That's why we have the uh, book to the Philippians or to the Ephesians. He's writing to these churches that existed in these cities. And the church would get the letter. Now, this is, <laughs> I think this artwork actually was done by the Jehovah's Witnesses. So, full, full transparency. They had the picture I wanted. I just used it, okay? So, <clears throat> here they are getting a letter from the apostle. And they get the original. Now, how amazing is that? This only inspired document, because uh, the co- copies after that aren't inspired. This one is inspired, and they held it in their hands. I mean, that is just amazing. So totally amazing. Well, they received it, and then they made copies. And here's the distinction. The copies were not inspired. God has not continually inspired everybody who's made a copy of each letter that was originally written. The uh, translators of the NIV Bible were not inspired as it got translated into English. The uh, people who existed in the Middle Ages who were making copies of all these ancient letters, they weren't inspired as they made copies. Okay, So that's an important thing to, to have in mind, and we'll talk through that more here in the next few slides. So I want us to turn to Galatians 1, 1 through 3 to kind of get an idea of how this process worked. Galatians chapter 1 and the first three verses. Would someone read those three for us? Galatians 1. One through three. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men nor through the agency of men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, so this is how Paul launches off the letter. Now, there's something that's important in here as it pertains to our conversation today. That's really easy to miss because you're usually not looking for it, okay? But check out at the end of verse 2, look at what it says. To the churches, plural, of Galatia. Not to the church of Galatia, because Galatia is a really big region. And you can read through Acts 14 and see some of the cities that are within Galatia. There were multiple cities. So this isn't like writing to the church at Ephesus. Ephesus was a city. And it was one church in that city, or Corinth, to the Corinthians. This is to a region. And he wrote this letter to the churches of Galatia. This is important to recognize because Paul wrote one letter to multiple churches. How do you think this worked? Did they call a big conference? Did they hang up flyers and call each other on the phone and say, Hey, one night only, come hear this letter from the Apostle Paul. That's not how it happened. But what would happen is that they would have to make copies. This is from Leon Morris in his commentary on Galatians. It is clear that Paul intended his words to have a wide circulation in the region of Galatia. The letter would be taken to each center and read there, or several copies would be made and one taken to each church. But perhaps Paul's reference to the large letters he wrote at the end, verse 611, indicates that the one copy went round all the churches rather than several copies were made and one sent to each church. So I imagine what happened was the first church that got it, maybe it was in Lystra or Derby or one of these cities, they get it and they want the next church to see this copy from Paul. But I imagine they're not letting that copy go without making a copy for themselves. They're not reading it and saying, oh, that was nice, see ya. (laughs) But that's from the Apostle Paul. And here he is claiming from the very beginning, look at verse 1, he's an apostle, not sent from men, not from the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. That means this letter carries authority. God has called me to this position. I'm writing to you on God's behalf. So you better believe they wanted their own copy. They get the letter from Paul, they make their own copy, and off the original goes to the next place, I'm sure under great care, as though they were carrying something more precious than gold. And so the original letter was written, and it went to the first church. Well, what happened after that is the churches made copies and passed the letters on to other churches. And this would happen over and over again with a variety of letters throughout the New Testament. There are 27 letters in the New Testament, and that's how these these letters circulated. And you can see, based on this kind of methodology, very early on in Christianity, you have letters of the Bible, copies of the Bible, exploding. 
and not just in one region, but exploding in various regions. Galatia isn't exactly right next door to Rome. And uh, James, who was writing to those believers in Jerusalem, that's not exactly right next door to Corinth. So you have all these different areas that are receiving letters, all these copies that are being made and going from one region to the next, and it's blowing up. John Frame said, in this copying process, and this is what's really important, God has not promised to keep all copyists from error. The process of copying is a fallible process. Sit down for yourself and try to copy the first chapter of Genesis. Most likely you will make a few mistakes. There is no passage in Scripture nor any biblical principle that promises otherwise. So on the one hand, it sounds really good where it's like, okay, they were making lots and lots of copies. But on the other hand, you have this reality that none of those copies were inspired. And so how do we synthesize that? Well, I think this was just another example of God's great genius in getting his special revelation to the world. When you have so many copies from so many different regions, it is so much easier to spot when the Word of God was tampered with, when the Word of God was changed. Because say early on, and, and this is very fathomable, fathomable, hard word to say, within the first hundred years of Christianity, there were a hundred copies of the uh, letter to the Galatians. Let's just say that was the case. Ninety-nine of those copies say that Paul was writing on behalf of the Lord Jesus. And one of those copies say he was writing on behalf of Lord Voldemort or something like that. Which one is in error? The 99 or the 1? Well, it's pretty clear, the 1, right? And, and that's a pretty obvious one, if someone wanted to insert some sort of false deity in there. Now, what if 99 of them said, Jesus Christ, and one of them said, Christ Jesus. It's likely that that one made a mistake, but it was an honest mistake. That person wasn't trying to manipulate anything, perhaps. That person's eyes crossed for a moment. Does that ever happen to you when you're reading or writing? It happens to me all the time. Your eyes go, whoop. And, uh, you don't, or, or you assume things when you're making copies. Oh, I've read this before, and you write it the way you've seen it before. Or perhaps someone skips a line when they're making copies and just jumps right over a line. And it's easy to tell the more copies that you have. Because the more copies you have, especially when they're from different regions, and you say, hey, uh, 745 copies from these three radically different regions all agree with the phrasing of, of this, and five that are all from this city up here have a different wording. It seems like those five are wrong, right? That makes it pretty simple to determine that those five were the ones that were out of order. But let me give you another idea, too, that an insight to God's genius in preserving his word here. By causing his word to explode like this in all these different places, you know what this also means? There was never a time in the history of the Bible when there was one person or organization that had control over the Bible. And that's really important. Because you'll watch some History Channel shows. I, I wouldn't recommend it, but I know you will, so I'm saying you will. And it'll come on, it'll be 11 o'clock at night, and you can't sleep, and there's this weird show that's on there about the lost secrets of the Bible. And they come on, and they say that someone like Constantine went in there, and he ripped out certain passages that he didn't like. Or some other famous figure from some certain time, he went in, and he had this, all this control over the Bible, and he changed the wording and manipulated That's just simply not the case. That's not true at all. I mean, perhaps there were those people who tried to do those things, but when they manipulated the Bible that way, it was so obvious that they had done so because we have so many copies from so many different areas. There was never a time where the Bible incubated in Egypt for 100 years, and we don't know what the Egyptians did to it. So we don't know if it came out the other side accurate or not. That never happened. It was always, from the beginning, an explosion. Letters scattered all over the place. And so even though the copying process wasn't inspired, wasn't a perfect process, it was God's means of preserving his word very clearly showing us where the errors are. Okay? Um, let's see, what do I got? Oh, these three basic points about, about copying. 99% of variants, those are uh, where a copy would disagree with another copy. 99% of those do not affect the meaning of the text at all. The vast, 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 vast majority of these uh, differences are innocent. 
Where, again, like John Frame said, you sit down and copy Genesis 1 and see if you do it perfectly. Now try doing all 50 chapters of Genesis and see if you do it perfectly. If we all did this, I mean, say there are 20 of us in this room, 25 of us. If we all did that, copied 50 chapters of Genesis, how many different copies of Genesis do you think we would have? Yeah, right, the exact same number. And how many of those mistakes would be just innocent? I didn't put a comma where I should have put a comma. I didn't say but or and where I should have. You know, those kind of things, right? The vast majority of these differences or variants are obvious errors. And there are many good books and other resources out there to walk you through these issues. I, I preached on this. I did a three-part series on confident in Scripture. It's, uh, each sermon was about an hour. That was more of like a conference-type sermon series. But uh, I, I preached it for the purpose of having that as a resource. I read through several books. I have those books available in my library. If you want more resources on this topic... We have the resources for you, okay? Don't want anybody to walk away uh, feeling like the explanation was insufficient. We have resources, okay? And so let's talk about circulation uh, for a moment as we consider how God used the circulation of his word, getting his word around through all these copies, how, uh, how this preserved his word. So three passages. Let's uh, get a volunteer for each one of them. 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 26. Who's got that? Raise your hand. 1 Corinthians 11. Who's going to read it for us? 23 to 26? Yes, Mandy's got it. 2 Timothy 4, 9 to 13. Who's got that one? 2 Timothy chapter 4, 9 to 13. Dean's got it. And 2 Peter 3, 15 to 16. 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16. Dax, thank you. All right, so as we look at these passages, here's what I want you to look for. How did these authors know what they knew as they're writing this down. And I, I think you'll get the hang of it after we look at this first one especially. So 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 26. Go ahead, uh, Mandy. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way... Also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Right. This is a passage you've seen a bunch of times before. We uh, often quote this one when we have communion. But something you may not have thought of is how did Paul quote Jesus here? Because Paul wasn't there, was he? On the night in which the Lord Jesus was betrayed, well, Paul was still a, a very zealous Jew, wasn't he? He wasn't one of the disciples. He wasn't sitting at the table. He, Paul never had a relationship with Judas, that scripture tells us. He wasn't there. And yet, here he is quoting Jesus in red letters, if you have a red letter Bible, quoting him directly. Now, it could be that, of course, God inspired that and he never heard this or, or saw this written down anywhere and that this was revealed to him on the spot. But I think what's more likely is that Paul, who had Luke as a companion, uh, who was investigating the life of Jesus, Paul, who had a relationship with Peter and James and others, and perhaps, uh, well, we know he had a relationship with John Mark, Mark's gospel, I'm sure he got this information directly from one of them, perhaps Luke or Mark, one of the two gospels. That was an early form of the letter that was written down. And so I think this is evidence that the word was starting to circulate, even in Paul's day. This is one of Paul's first letters, and I think uh, this is evidence of that. But a couple more, uh, 2 Timothy 4, 9 through 13. Uh, who, Dean, you got that one. Make every effort to come to me soon. For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Um, Creation has gone to Galatia, Titus to uh, Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. But Titus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak which I have left at Troas with Capris. And the books, especially for, especially the parchments. All right. Yeah. Sorry, Dean. Way to take the bullet for us on that one. <laughs> yeah. Well, you see in verse 13, what, what is Paul desiring gets brought to him? Parchments. 
Okay, he's got his coat, or cloak, and the books and the parchments. Do you think those books and parchments had anything to do with the New Testament? I imagine so. It doesn't say the parchments that contain the Gospel of Matthew. It it just doesn't say that, okay. But I think it's reasonable to conclude that these books, this is the end of Paul's life, that these books contain some of the works of the apostles and prophets. And then 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16. This one's quite clear. Uh, Dex, go ahead. And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. All right. So he is saying in these verses that he knows that Paul has written letters. I mean, maybe you didn't know about this passage before. This is pretty cool. Peter here is giving a, a statement on Paul's letters. And he says, I know that Paul has written, or written, written to you multiple letters. You see that in verse 16. It says all his letters. He knows that there's at least a couple. I'm sure he knew of more. And he goes on to say, Paul writes some things that are hard to understand. Any of you ever felt that way? Reading through Romans or if Hebrews was written by Paul, that's another one that's kind of tough. He's writing these letters and they're things that are hard to understand. And so that's evidence too that these letters are getting around. Peter's read them himself. He's read these letters. Now a couple more passages I want to give you are Colossians 4.16. So you can write that down. Colossians chapter 4, verse 16. I'll read that to you. And again, this is a clear evidence of circulation. Paul actually here is commanding it. He says in this verse, When this letter is read among you, have it also read to the church of the Laodiceans. And you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. So they had a relationship, the Colossians had a relationship with the church in Laodicea. And Paul says, I wrote them a letter and they're sending it to you. You send this letter to them. And again, I think it would be pretty naive for them to just get the letter from Paul and send it off without making a copy. I bet they would make multiple copies for themselves that they could share with others. And then another one is 1 Thessalonians 5. You can jot this down. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 27, where Paul says, I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. That's 1 Thessalonians 5, 27. Okay? So the Word of God was circulating. Copies were being made. And this was God's method of preserving His Word. Now you might ask yourself the question, if you haven't asked yourself this before, how do I know the Bible contains the full Word of God? Well, um, let me start by saying there was never a time, this is kind of a repeat of what I've already said, there was never a time when God's people got together to make a decision as to what books should be in and what books should be out. Anybody who ever teaches you that, you just have to say, show me where, and then it will fall to pieces. Okay, that's a, that's a myth that just never happened. God's people have always recognized, that's a blank that you have, God's people have always recognized His authority in special revelation and preserved those writings, its end being the English translation that you have in front of you today. Through preservation, it has has worked its way from Greek and Hebrew and a little bit of Aramaic that was preserved through all kinds of copies 2,000 years later. Here we are, and we have not only an English Bible in front of us, but the English Bible of our choice because we have a bunch. We have the one that we like. We like the way it reads the best. I mean, aren't we spoiled? That's almost sickening when you think about it. Which one of these many English translations should I use? There's another question you might ask yourself. Well, there is no one perfect or re-inspired English translation of Scripture, but some are better than others. Okay? And if you need help on that, we can walk you through that. Uh, you will come across sometimes some people who talk about the King James Bible as though it was the re-inspired English version of the Bible, that it's the only correct English version. That is also not true. There's nothing wrong with the King James Bible, generally speaking. Use it if you want. But uh, it was not re-inspired. No translation or copy was ever inspired. Only the originals were inspired. Okay, And what makes one English translation better than another? It's faithfulness to what the original text has said. The more faithful it is to what the original has said, that's, that means it's better. 
I'm going I'm to end on this today. This is from our doctrinal statement about the Word of God, the doctrinal statement of Orchard Hills Bible Church. We believe in the verbal and plenary inspiration of the Scriptures, consisting of 66 books which constitute the Old and New Testaments, the Word of God, inerrant in the original writings, the complete and unalterable special revelation of God, there's a word from today, and our final authority, another word from today. We believe in the normal, literal, and consistent interpretation of the Scriptures and a dispensational understanding of God's progressive revelation. And there are the uh, references that we cite for that, uh, one of which we, we read today. Okay, So that is uh, what we believe as a church, and the lesson this morning kind of gave you some insight into some of that. Not all of that. We'll get to all of it eventually, but, uh, but that's where we are um, as a church. And We'll save that for next time. We'll get into theology next time. So I will now stop. We've got about a dozen minutes for uh, questions. Hopefully you've got something because uh, I want to save all that other stuff for the next lesson. Thoughts or questions? Hmm. Yes, Joe. The question was asked, but I was wondering... Yeah, right. It changes every time. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Yeah, because it's an interesting thing um, as you think through how this would play out. There wasn't one copy that went around. Um, let's see. So you've got the original. Let me put an O on there. And it went to a church that made a copy. Now, if the church kept the original and sent their copy, uh, you have more likely a chance of the telephone game happening. But they kept their copy and sent off the original. And they would make their copy and send off the original. And off it would go. Um, perhaps even just to prevent that very thing. I'm sure they thought through all the implications of that. And uh, it's, again, I think a little naive for us to think that a church would only have one copy. A church likely would have multiple copies. You could say five copies here, five copies here, and on and on it goes. And the more that you get that are first-generation copies off of the original, the more that you get like that, uh, the better chance that you have of the word being preserved. And it seems as though that's what God did. Okay. Other thoughts or questions? Lizzie. Where are like ancient scripts now? What do you what do you mean by ancient like, scripts? Like these scripts, the originals, is there any like originals laying around well, in the museum or something that we can see? No, so there are as far as we know, we don't have any originals. And the difficulty is we wouldn't even know. <laughs> because if the copies are to match the originals, unless they put a note at the top that said uh, First Baptist Church of Colossae, and you know, here's the date. You know, uh, it's supposed to be a joke. Uh, then, um, then we wouldn't know for sure that it was a copy. But, uh, but yeah, it seems like some of the earliest that we have, it gets back to the early 100s. That's that's about as early as we can go. Overall, uh, within the first thousand years of Christianity, um, we have 5,000 manuscript copies, something like that, um, and. The, you know, the farther on time goes, just by the nature of how these things work, the later the copies were made, the more well intact they are. And usually the, uh, the more that we have where, you know, the, the second century fragments that we have are really just fragments. Like there's one that we found, uh, P, I think it's P72, which is an amazing piece. It's very early of uh, First Peter, but it's the size of a credit card. It's very tiny. Okay, uh, but then you get to the 14th century, 13th century, and you might find all four Gospels and the Book of Acts bound together. Okay, but it's just later on. So that's kind of how those things work. Again, there's a whole there are a whole bunch of great resources out there that can walk you through how all that has played out in archaeology. Yeah, go ahead. I kind of know the answer to it, but I still want to ask. Okay. Um, is the making of the verses inspired? Oh. The making of chapters and verses. Yeah. No. <laughs> uh, they're really well done. 
with a, a few exceptions. And we know that they're well done because anytime we see one of those exceptions, we think, why did they make a chapter break right here? <laughs> it's like, why did, they, why did they do that? There are a few places where I just don't understand what they were thinking. Um, but no, those came much later, uh, quite a bit later. Earlier on, this is in the fourth century, there was a church historian named Eusebius, and he made a way of indexing scripture that's different than chapters and verses. And it was boy, I don't know, the 1200s or something like that when chapters were first introduced and then after that were verses, maybe two or 300 years after that. It's just a way of indexing and helping us find the right thing. Yeah. Yep. So as we um, address, and I mean, I, I'm not going to say, I did grow up Mormon. Yeah. So how do we address the Book of Mormon and the Pearl of Great Price and the Doctrine and Covenants that to be inspired scriptures when we know they were written by a young man. <laughs> yeah. Well, not only that, and they've, I mean that. And they've gone through several iterations, especially right. the Book of Mormon. Right. Um, well, it all comes back to that very first point. Who's the authority? God. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and so their starting point, again, you, so often you get what you start with. And they start with, you can't trust the Bible. And so they get supplements to the Bible. So um, the starting point has to change. That's the bottom line. And that means their authority has to change. Yeah. And it's very difficult. You can't change it for them. That's the hard part. It's even in the article of faith. We believe the Bible to be the true word of God as long as it is correctly. Sorry, I went through it That's the eighth article of faith. And then, the yeah. next, and then what does the next sentence say? We also believe the Book of Mormon to be true, but they don't question they don't say we also believe the Book of Mormon to be true as long as it's translated correctly. Exactly. That phrase is missing. And so there is a, there's an underlying skepticism that comes from the get-go with the Bible, from the LDS perspective, that is undefined. And that's really difficult. It doesn't say, we question these verses. It just is a blanket statement says we question the whole thing. And so um, that is really difficult to engage with. Really the closest you can get is looking at the Joseph Smith translation, the, ones, the verses he thought he should correct. But even then, there are so many different views on, on the Joseph Smith translation and what its purpose is supposed to be for the Mormon church that very few people put any credibility uh, behind it. So, yeah, uh, it, all, it all has to do with starting points and authority. Okay. Yep. yep. Other thoughts or questions? So when we hear that they found this piece of scripture or whatever, the mm-hmm. original. Just yeah, if someone ever claims to have found the original, it's going to need just some really good evidence. Now, and, and, but this is the exciting thing. We still are finding new things. Uh, archaeology is continuing, and the deeper you dig, the older it gets. And it takes a long time to dig deep, and the world is a big place. And so we're continually finding so much. I mean, you just look at the past hundred years. Go a hundred years ago in Christianity. What did we have for copy manuscript copies through the ages? Not much. And now we're talking thousands. And there's reason to believe that that number is going to keep climbing. And so if someone ever says there's an original, you, you want to know why they say that. Okay. If someone ever says we found a lost letter of Paul, this is uh, the second letter to the Galatians that there should have been. Well, you want to say, okay, why do you think that's from Paul, number one? Um, And number two, you have to work through this as as a Christian. Do I consider that to be Scripture? My answer is no, you you shouldn't. Um, Paul and Peter, they wrote all kinds of things. Not everything was preserved. Only that which was inspired was preserved. And so you don't look at a grocery list Peter wrote and say is inspired just because Peter wrote it, right? Uh, So what what you do is you have to think through those things as they come up. And and they are going to come up because we keep finding more. So how do you know what's true? Because God has given it to you. He has given you his word. He's revealed himself and he's preserved his word. And so you don't have to go hunting for more. And, and so many people, they just love the hunt. They don't want to settle. And they're always looking for the next word from God or the next thing that the Discovery Channel will present or whatever. And they don't want to be settled. Where God has said, it's settled. Here's my word. Yep. Yeah, four minutes. <laughs> so, how can I better respond to somebody that grew up to a witness? Like, when I'm talking to them, and I'm like, you can read any Bible, you know, like, you can choose, there's this version, that version, yep. this version. 
Except for the New World Translation. Except, um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that sounds like an oxymoron. Like, yeah. for somebody that is like learning, yep. they're like, okay, so you're telling me to read any, any Bible book except that one. Yes. So how do I, can I, how can I better talk yeah. about it without sounding like an oxymoron? Well, here's what you can do. Is, um, let's see, you can say, you can take their New World Translation, and you can flip to a passage where it says, uh, you must you know, like be baptized. Okay. There's a, like second Acts Acts two thirty eight. Peter says, "Repent and be baptized." Ask them for their Bible. Take a pen, mark out the baptized part, and say, "Eat a peanut butter sandwich." <laughs> Write that down in there and say, "This is the Bible you should use." What are they going to say? Well, what, 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 what are they going to say? I mean, what's the typical response going to be? Uh, well, that's what God said. I don't know. <laughs> well, they're going to say, no, this is the Bible that we've been given, the New World Translation. Charles Taze Russell with the Jehovah's Witnesses. He gave us this translation from God. But he did the same thing to the Bible. He went to John 1.1 and he changed it from in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God. And he changed it to the Word was a God. He did the same thing. He put a peanut butter sandwich in there. And so you say, you have to examine the translation processes. What did Charles Taze Russell have that allowed him to change the Word of God? Ask them that question. And I don't, I mean, you'll probably get different answers for what, what they might say. But what gives him the authority to take what God has said and manipulate it like that? Look at the processes for these English translations. You could say the ESV, the New American Standard, the King James Bible, whatever it may be. You had a group of men getting together and women, and they were looking at these copies, these manuscripts, and they were doing the best that they could to faithfully represent what was in the manuscripts in the English language. That's how they, they operated. And there were multiple people on the committees. It wasn't one man saying he got a new revelation from God and put a peanut butter sandwich in the Bible. Okay? That's the difference. And again, people will hear what they want to hear, and they have their starting points that determine where they end up. Didn't think I'd be talking about peanut butter sandwiches this morning. That's sometimes how that works. Okay, well, let me go ahead and close us in prayer, and then we'll move on to the next thing. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness in revealing yourself to us, not only all around us in nature, but in your word, Scripture. God, we ask that as we endeavor together to examine what Scripture has said and as we seek to build a, a body of doctrines to define our faith, that we would do so faithfully, meaning that we do so in accordance with what you have said. We don't want to stray from what you have given us, Lord. And we ask that you would guide us and you would direct our thinking and give us humility that we'd be in full submission to your authority as found in Scripture. God, we love you. We thank you. Ask your blessing on the rest of this day that you would be glorified among us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.